For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Rum Buncher Radio, episode 30. Trey Yannity, Marty Leap with you. Tonight we are joined by another guest. This one we've been excited about for quite some time. Wayne Stewart joins Rum Buncher Radio. Wayne is an author of 36 different books. Uh, we're going to focus on one specifically tonight, recapping the 1960 World Series Championship. Um, but we're going to go through Wayne's past and really cover a lot of different stuff. Wayne, thank you so much for coming on with us tonight. Glad to do so. Glad to be with you. Let's jump right into it. Talk about kind of how you got involved, uh, you know, how you kind of became a Pirates fan, got involved in writing, and, um, you know, maybe talk about your childhood. Wayne was actually teammates with King Griffey Sr. in high school. What was that like, man, growing up around the game? You said you were uh, born in the same hometown as Stan Musial. Obviously, baseball was, was in your blood from a young age. Right. It's really something, you know, from the age of six, I said to my parents, I wanted to be a reporter. I knew I wanted to write. And, uh, you know, my parents kind of taught me to, to love words and, and reading. And then from there, being in, in a town that was so sports oriented, I mean, they, the town of Denora, Pennsylvania also produced a running back, led the NFL in rushing one year. And officially, Ken Griffey Jr. is born in Denora on, an, in fact, the same date as Stan Musial. Uh, remember one time, um, usual tease Griffey when he, uh, you know, met him, came across him one yeah. place. He said, you know, you know, Griffey says, you're the second best left-handed hitting, left-handed throwing outfielder from Denora, Pennsylvania. Meaning, of course, Stan was the best, but, you know, he was just teasing. But no, that background in Denora was just enormous as far as um, me wanting to write and being involved in, in baseball. Uh, I grew up listening to Bob Prince on KDK radio and learned an awful lot of baseball from him. I mean, I can remember one time him talking about uh, little things like the team that wins in baseball typically scores more runs in one inning than the other team scores for the whole ball game. And I kind of, over the years, checked it out. It really holds true quite often. Interesting. Um, so, yeah, baseball is in my blood and uh, Bob Prince and, 
as a kid, I was torn a little bit because while I listened to the Pirates, uh, Hank Aaron, for some reason, you know how it is when you're five, six years old, but he actually was my favorite player. So I'd get in debates about Clemente versus Aaron, but uh, no, I, 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 you know, I've grown to love the Pirates now, and uh, you know, once Aaron retired, it was it's, I'm really pulling for the Pirates. So uh, I've gone through a lot of years. You know, I was in 1960. I was nine years old, so I remember that a little bit. And you know, you and I have gone through the 22 years or so of Pirates having tough luck, but. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, the Pittsburgh connection is there. In fact, I was born in Pittsburgh. Oh, excellent! Yeah, and and like you said, you know, you you've got experience a good deal more uh, than Marty or I have. Marty more than myself as well. Um, but but talk about how the game has kind of changed. What you've seen, um, you know, from the game of baseball since you started covering it, and and how things have shifted, um, you know, from that that childhood when you when you started to get involved in the game. Oh, absolutely. I mean. The, you know, the, the trends that have happened in baseball now, you know, relief pitchers uh, like Elroy Face of the 1960 Pirates, they would, they would sometimes come in the game in the sixth or seventh inning, or more like the seventh, uh, and it wasn't a clean inning. They would come in with men on second and third, bases loaded, and, you know, work the rest of the game quite often. Uh, the save totals in the old days before the rules changed, you know, if you had 30 saves, you're doing a great job, and then... Uh, you know, Francisco Rodriguez and other guys come along and shatter that. Uh, and, and just, you know, this year, all the changes where you have to face three batters and so on. So if you've been around long enough, you see the game evolve and a whole ton of changes. You're right. Definitely. It's, it's you know, like you're saying, recently, if nothing else, it's changed the most with all these rule changes. We even saw a video today, uh, shared it on our Run Bunter Twitter page. It was uh, Hannes Wagner way back in 1933 just talking about how the game was beginning to change then. Obviously, it has taken, um, you know, leaps and strides since then. But I'd say the culture, I guess, you know, certain teams um, like the New York Yankees, for example, haven't changed at all. Let's let's begin to talk about your book here, Wayne. 1960, when the Pittsburgh Pirates had the had them all the way, the New York Yankees were a heavy favorite in this World Series, and I think that's kind of, you know, the theme of this book. Um, how. The odds were stacked against the Pirates. Talk about kind of the early inspiration for this book and and really the reasoning um, that went into your decision to say, hey, you know what? This was an incredible story. I think I'm going to write a book about this. Yeah, actually, it started, uh, and I'm not sure if it was 20 or 30 years ago, because I remember there was another anniversary date. This year, of course, is the 60th anniversary of that uh, season and, and Fantastic World Series. But something like 20, 30 years ago, I was doing a magazine article. Uh, about that, and I was fortunate enough to talk to many of the uh, of the uh, pirates. In fact, almost every star. Uh, and so now, with this 60th anniversary coming up a while ago, I said, "Why don't I dig out what I had and and, and get updated interviews with some of these guys?" Like I spoke to Bob Friend shortly before he died, Hal Smith, um, and he just passed away. I think it was what November or January. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, taking the old interviews that I had and really elaborating and reaching out to guys that I hadn't talked to before, like Dick Schofield, Vernon Law, uh, and these guys were so willing to talk. And I think the old timers enjoy relishing, you know, in, in the past, whereas some of the modern players I talked to are helpful and there are some that are more standoffish. But, you know, with the help of the Pirates and updating the old magazine article, everything fell into place for this book. Talk about those interviews a little bit and, and what it was like to kind of, you know, talk with the living players from that team and their experiences throughout the, uh, you know, that, that run and, and just in the game of baseball. Well, 
aside from the fact that, as I said, they were so helpful. And Vern Law, for example, I, I think he was 88 years old when I interviewed him for this book about a year or so ago. And um, we were on the phone taping the interview for, I think, like an hour, hour and a half. And I said, you know, this guy's getting up there in age. Maybe I better ask him if he wants to either take a break or me call back in a week or something. Yeah. No, no, let's let's talk. That's fine. And then when we reached roughly the two two hour mark, I said, "My goodness, he's gotta be tired." You know, oh, let's talk some more. So they they do enjoy talking about the past. I'm not, you know, awestruck, especially with modern players. But when I get a chance to talk, as I did once on the phone with Hank Aaron, uh, you know, these these guys from your childhood to me have more impact than talking with a modern star. Uh, if I talk to somebody active now, it's more like I'm doing a job. But I truly enjoyed talking to, uh, as I said, these pirates. And I wanted to get a perspective of some of the National Leaguers who played against them. So I was able to talk to uh, a bunch of St. Louis Cardinals from that era and other players like some of the Yankees. So yeah, it was an enjoyable uh, enjoyable piece of writing, you know. No, I definitely think that something you said there, Wayne, that you know, I think a lot of people would probably agree with you how you said, you know, you, you talk to these current players you watch as an adult, and it's just not the same as if you get the opportunity to talk to someone who you grew up watching, you grew up idolizing. I know looking at it from my point of view, for example, like we've had multiple current players on podcasts. I've interviewed them for the website. It's exciting, but it's exciting because you're doing a job that you enjoy. But, you know, if you look at someone like take Ken Griffey Jr., for example, who I grew up watching, I grew up idolizing as a kid when I'm playing Little League Baseball. That's, that's something that would definitely hit home differently. I think that's a great point you brought up that a lot of people probably don't really think about. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, you know, we mentioned earlier Ken Griffey Sr., and uh, I, I think it's also rewarding when you talk to some of these guys that they are still, I know Kenny, uh, we used to call him Kenny, uh, is he's still loyal to Denor, and he'll come back home. And uh, I know Stan Musial used to go to, to class reunions and give presents up. So, uh, like you said, the modern player, I'm not ripping them, but uh, – they tend to be more uh, maybe aloof a little bit, not all of them. Uh, and somebody told me once, another sports writer, that when these guys of this generation get older, they're going to be able to look back, relax more, and talk about and enjoy their past as well. So it's a little different. Uh, depends what angle you're coming from. Interesting. Yeah, the, the player has certainly shifted. Um, just the attitude and, and the way the players carry themselves nowadays is – has definitely shifted. Have you noticed that reflection in the game? We we talked about rule changes and everything else just a minute ago, but you know, have you seen that on the field with with players you've had the chance to talk to, and, and you know, versus these current players, do they kind of treat the game differently? I think so. I, I I know if you look on a lot of levels, like preparation, they're much more sophisticated. I talked to Tony Gwynn when he was a pioneer of, of studying video and so on, but it's gone way beyond that. The time and the effort that these guys put in. If you go back the other direction, like to the days of Hannes Wagner, these guys were often just crude guys coming off of a, a farm or, you know, dropouts from school, Dizzy Dean, you know, not educated. And that's changed a lot. Uh, the, the way you can approach athletes, I think, has changed, at least for me. I'm not like a daily a beat writer. But when I wanted to talk to uh, Adrian Gonzalez when he was with the Red Sox, I had to call their, you know, the PR people ahead of time. They were going to run it by him to see if he wanted to talk. When I went to the clubhouse, I was met there by a PR lady who said, you know, well, you know, you only have so much time and, you know, all this stuff. 
Whereas when I first started writing, it was, I would call a lady named Sally O'Leary at the Pirates, say, can I come into town tonight? Sure. And then you just mingled with the players by the batting cage. Uh, I guess some daily writers don't do that sort of thing, but it was so much easier. So many facets have changed, be it media, the professionalism of the athletes, their prep, a whole lot has changed. Definitely, no doubt about it. Uh, and, I, you know, I think that it's it's obvious on the field, um, but, but it's interesting to hear that take because a lot of the times, I think nowadays players just, you don't get to see their personality as much, their true personality. They don't have as much time with the media to really sit down and, um, you know, kind of talk about what they like and, and what they're really like. Um, that's kind of what we've, we've tried to make this podcast a platform for, for players to come and, you know, express their thoughts and everything else. I definitely, um, you know, can see where that would be an outlet for you as well to get these players' thoughts and talking with older players and, and guys that have, you know, been around the game and in the game and now out of the game for a while, you know, what are their thoughts on, on how the game is changing from what you've gotten from your interviews and, and what they expect in the game of baseball moving forward? Well, you, you do get that old school approach where the old timers will say stuff like these kids today don't know how to lay down a block. <laughs> you know, you'll get that stuff, of course. And, you know, somebody told me that there was a book from like 19, I don't know, 25, where the old timers were saying, they don't know how to lay down a butt nowadays. So <laughs> some of these complaints go on and on. But I, I think uh, there's a wide range. You'll hear some of the old timers say, I, I don't begrudge these guys anything. Like uh, Dick Schofield is the grandfather of uh, Based on Worth. And he was talking about the, the, scary, the big gap between what he earned with the Pirates and Red Sox and uh, what his grandson earns. And a lot of them uh, will say, you know, I don't begrudge them. But then again, you get the cantankerous guys who will say, well, we never made this kind of money. So I don't think there's a specific answer, like a blanket answer for all the athletes and their approach toward or their attitude toward players today and so on. But, uh, yeah, I guess I'd have to say it varies. Yeah. Talking about this 1960 run a little bit more, coming back to your book now. What was the the mindset of the team throughout this season before the playoffs even started? You know, was there a, a vibe of hey, we can really do this thing? Obviously, the Yankees that season were dominant. Um, what, what was kind of the early take from those players as the season went on? Yeah, well, if you go back to 1958, that was uh, the first season, first full season for Danny Murtaugh being the manager, and he took this team that had been in the doldrums. I mean, they were pathetic. Uh, there's a Joe Garagiola story that's pretty funny if you want to get into that later about how bad those Pirates were in the early 50s. Uh, in 59, they were hoping to be able to raise that optimism another notch, but they kind of faltered. So going into 60, it was kind of iffy. What, what do we do under Murtaugh? We had a second-place finish, but then a fourth-place finish. But I'll tell you what happened early in the season, and I think this was from Hal Smith, they started to realize things were happening, that something special was going on here. On Easter Sunday, and I have my notes in front of me, they were down on April 17th, 5 nothing, going into the ninth inning. They stormed back with six runs on six hits. Bob Skinner hits a walk-off home run, which I figure probably led Bob Prince to use that famous line, you know, we had them all the way, yeah. which he would use jokingly when they really didn't, but they did a miracle. And um, Dick Schofield, who was a utility infielder, said that comeback was something. He said, quote, you could play a thousand games like that one and maybe win one. But I started to get the feeling from talking to these guys, that may be true, 
but 1960 was a one in a thousand kind of season. Uh, after that victory, he asked me what the Pirates were thinking and believing. Hal Smith, who was the backup catcher, said to Bob Skinner, hey, Bob, uh, where do we sign up now to get their World Series ticket? So <laughs> that was creeping in. That, that feeling, we can do it, was really starting to permeate uh, the Pirates. And they had so many um, comeback wins. I think they had a little bit over 20 comeback wins in their last at bat, in fact. And 12 times they won after they were there were already two outs in the final inning. Uh, even extra inning games, I think it was like 70% of their extra inning games they won. So... Yeah, they became believers in themselves pretty quickly. Let's rewind a little bit, talk about those teams in the 50s and, and kind of what led up to this 1960 team. Get into that story a little bit and, um, you know, just the lead up to, to greatness. Obviously, it was a one in a thousand season that the Pirates weren't expecting quite yet. What got them there? Yeah, well, if you do go back to the early 50s, that Joe Garagiola thing, he was with the Pirates in 52. That team lost 112 games. Wow. Uh, and you remember, they only played 154 games yeah. scheduled back then. So he was talking about the general manager of the Pirates back then, which was Branch Rickey, of course, a legend for signing Jackie Robinson. But he said the Pirates were the first team to wear the protective batting helmets under Branch Rickey. But then he joked about it saying, you know, we really didn't need batting helmets because we were such weak hitters. The other team wasn't going to bean us or brush us back. You know, nobody <laughs> threw it our heads because we stunk. And they did. But Branch Rickey laid some of the groundwork. He made some nice moves. But you know how it is a lot of times. Like Don Mattingly did a nice job with the Dodgers. But it wasn't a you know World Series winning team. So they fire him. Now Dave Roberts kind of benefits to some extent uh, from inheriting that. Well, by the same token, Joe Brown became the general manager after Rickey. And he did, uh, he engineered a lot of really good trades. I can't remember everybody, but I think he brought in Harvey Haddix, uh, Don Hoke, um, let me think, uh, Bill Verdon. And so the nucleus of that club was probably there somewhat under under Branch Rickey. But boy, uh, Brown did a great job. And bringing in Murtaugh turned out to be a stroke of genius. And then, like we said, second place finished in 58. Didn't do that well in 59, although they were about 500. But then 60, again, everything clicked. And remember, after 60, they really didn't uh, challenge any with any seriousness until the 70s, which were, that was a great decade. That was a great decade. Yeah, I've always thought that that was one of the things that kind of made the 1960 team like that much more remarkable what they did. Like you said, it's not like that was, you know, you look at the 71 team, for example, where that set up the Pirates to be so successful for the next decade. That didn't happen with this 1960 team. And to me, at least, I think that just adds to how great of a story and how much fun that team really was. Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, it was just, uh, again, a, to me, a season of destiny. Uh, if, you know, some of the things that happened in the World Series were just remarkable. They were just strange plays. And almost every play that's bizarre, uh, like a, a play of destiny, went the Pirates' way. I think there was like one exception. but Strange bounces and just everything seemed to like conspire for the Pirates. 78 wins in 1959. Season of destiny in 1960. They get to the World Series. They Look at the opponents, the New York Yankees, you know, a, a team that um, at this point obviously already has uh, the baseball allure and is a heavy favorite. When you're doing these interviews, 
could you hear the emotion in, in these guys' voices of, you know, what they were stacked up against taking on the New York Yankees? You know, they, as we touched on earlier, they became such believers that I think even looking back, uh, or if we would have talked to them back then, uh, I think they were not uh, so shocked. Statistically, the Pirates did in many uh, categories, not that you can totally compare leagues, but they did uh, as well or better than the Yankees in a lot of departments. But the average fan, of course, is thinking, you got Marish, you got Mantle, you got Yogi Berra, Whitey Ford, and they did have the dynasty going for them, you know, without a doubt. But the Pirates said a couple of things that, that I spoke to. One was they believed in themselves, they believed in Danny Murtaugh, and the second thing was uh, that when they lost, and if you remember, they lost by scores of 16 to 3, 10 to nothing, and 12 to nothing. The one thing they said, which if you can do it and really believe it makes sense, is they did not go home at night and say to themselves, I'm going to toss and turn all night. I can't believe it. What if we would have done this? It wasn't a 3 to 2, uh, you know, heartbreaker. It was a uh, not a nail biter, you know, it was a lopsided game. So shake it off. And that's what Murtha told them. We'll go after him tomorrow. And they did. They did indeed. Everybody knows the tale. Bill Mazeroski walks it off with a home run in the ninth inning. Uh, is there, I guess, a, a way to describe, was there a way to describe for these players that moment? We don't have the video from back then like we do nowadays where we see all the angles and get the interviews immediately and you know, really get to soak in the drama, that moment with the team. How, how was that? How did they handle that moment? You know, what was the immediate reaction? Obviously, a lot of excitement, a, a lot of joy. Um, walk us through their emotion in, in that moment when the home run happened. Yeah, you know, the footage that I've seen, and as you say, it's very limited, one angle, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it was just elation. I mean, if you've seen the footage, you know, Maz, when he realizes it's gone out, he thought he had a double initially. He takes off his batting helmet and starts waving his arm around it like a windmill motion. Uh, in fact, that's, I think, isn't that what's portrayed pretty much with his helmet off on the statue oh, yeah. over there by PNC, you know? And so he went crazy and uh, he swamped at home plate, as you'd expect. There's a picture of a usher who's supposed to be, you know, officiating the game in effect, controlling the crowd. He's out there on the field, uh, young kids, and uh, Clemente and everybody just uh, engulfs Maz as he's at home plate. Then um, afterwards, the celebration in the clubhouse and so on. Um, and just It's just amazing because when you think of Maz, he, in that World Series, he actually had two game-winning home runs. I think it was game one and seven. And here are the highly touted Yankees, um, and Maz winds up hitting as many or more homers than every Yankee except for uh, uh, Mantle. Mickey Mantle hit three, Maris hit two, a guy named Moose Gowan hit two, and so did Maz hit two. So naturally, he's elated. And um, one of my favorite lines comes out of that because they're interviewing a, a reserve outfielder named Gino Simoli, and he's asked about this. You know, they beat you 16 to three, and, uh, and so on. And he's grinning ear to ear. I've seen the footage in the on YouTube in the clubhouse. So this Gino Simoli talking about the Pirates getting shellacked and winning. He says, "Well, they broke all the records and we won the game. You know, meaning Game Seven. So he's right. And the Pirates take home a winner's share. Which, by the way, you want to talk about a contrast between then and now. The winning share was about eighty four hundred, and the Yankees took home about fifty two hundred. <laughs> wow, that's that's just insane to to think about. And like you said, a twelve nothing game. Uh, in, in yeah. game six there, the way they responded. And what's so cool about that moment, too, like you said, the usher 
was in on it. You see fans on the field. You see fans running with Mazarowski, rounding third base, heading to home. Such a cool moment that, you know, we don't get to see nowadays with the way things are set up, um, you know, especially not in a year like 2020, obviously. Um, but but you mentioned a minute ago, you, you talked to some Yankees from that team, too. How do they describe it? You know, what was their reaction and, and you know, things like from that oh, yeah. side uh, in that moment? Well, I talked to Bobby Richardson, who got the MVP of the World Series. We can talk about that later. Yeah. But Richardson said, you know, Mantle was crushed because he, he was, A, uh, used to winning, but he didn't feel entitled, said Richardson. But the reason he was so upset, he was actually crying in the clubhouse, was that he was convinced this was one World Series where we were better, we crushed him, but we lose. Um, Mantle was so... Uh, uh, distraught that, uh, you know, he was actually, now I don't think he did it publicly back then, but he blamed Stengel for a lot of uh, moves that he did that were, you know, very questionable. He was getting kind of old. They said during the season, he sometimes fell asleep in the dugout. But, uh, you know, getting back to your answer, uh, A, they were crushed, disappointed. Uh, Yogi, I think, had a quote something like, uh, you know, forever he would think that, uh, you know, we lost to a team that wasn't as good as us, but uh, that's the way it goes. You know, that's why they play the whole best out of seven series all the way out. It was something. <laughs> no kidding. And, you know, you look at some of those names, Yogi Berra, like you mentioned, Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris, this Yankees team was loaded and certainly, you know, had a claim to think that they were the best team that year. The Pirates win that World Series four games to three, Bill Mazarowski, the statue, everything else that comes with it. I, I would say... This is, you know, if there's one moment to highlight in Pirates baseball, it's obviously got to be this moment. Um, but, you know, talking with with more guys around that team, what was kind of, I guess, what did they think about the legacy that left? Did they talk about the impact that they made on this organization? Yeah, they, they realized certainly the impact it's had because some of the guys still go back. I guess this year they kind of tapered it down. But the celebration at the wall there in Forbes Field, that they do every year. They play, you know, the, the recording of the World Series and yeah. act it out and try to finish it exactly at 3.36 p.m., I guess. <laughs> so they know the, uh, they're well aware of that. And there had been talk of, in fact, there had been definite plans this year to have a big reunion in Pittsburgh at uh, PNC. And uh, I think it was Hal Smith was telling me how much he was looking forward to that. And it was a shame that it got canceled because of the virus but uh no they they're they formed a bond i mean it's a, a team that to this day you know lives together as far as their camaraderie and, and what they accomplished and as you said the the legacy and the impact they left behind yeah definitely do you think that you know you've done all this research about this team and obviously leading up to it do you think that that a turnaround like this is possible in nowadays obviously the pirates like you said have, have been struggling now for 22 years had the ups and downs, had the Andrew McCutcheon era, everything else. Um, but, you know, do you think that kind of situation could exist in today's game where a team wins 78 games, turns it around, and, and has a season like this? Boy, I tell you what, let's put it this way. If uh, if I had to bet, you know, uh, or place odds, it would be so staggering, you know, so enormous. Because, you know, Cleveland is compared to Pittsburgh in many ways, and they certainly turn things around. But, you know, to win it all, or to turn around like you've indicated here from 59 to 60, uh, with a small market situation, uh, I really think it's nearly impossible. Um, you know, look at the Yankees. Anytime they feel like, oh, we could use a Giancarlo Stanton, they go out and get him. Pirates can't do that, you know. 
Uh, I think it's a shame. I wish there was like a salary cap or something. But um, boy, no, I, I think it's, if not impossible, so close that um, it would be miraculous for a small market team like that to, you know, to turn around drastically. I think that's what's what's the saddest part of how the game has changed. It's it's, it's changed so many teams' brand. The Pirates' brand has shifted enormously from 1960 to, to modern day. Um, it's crazy to think that small market teams like Pittsburgh, you know, could really struggle to to turn it around like that nowadays. Um, but it, it's certainly not impossible. And you know, with a small market team like Pittsburgh, some magic magical seasons like 1960 have to happen. Um, you know, for this team to win. But the future is bright. 1960 obviously is uh, the brightest spot in this franchise's history to that point um incredible work on your book there wayne guys please go check it out let's let's feature some more of your writing though 36 books talk about your career as an author and and um you know what it's led you to some opportunities and you know the enjoyments memories you've had over the years yeah i think the most rewarding thing is you know well maybe a couple things a that i wanted to do it since i was six i actually wrote you know just little silly books back then it was like you know, you're limited to your vocabulary and language, like baseball is a fun game was the title of one of my books. But no, the fact that, yeah, the fact that I, well, the sequel was football is a fun game, by the oh, way. Oh, there we go, yeah. But yeah, yeah, I was going to cash in on that. But no, you know, loving it, uh, loving it so much and being able to see it come to fruition is, is one thing. Um, and even though we're not starstruck anymore, like you've said, when you talk to some guys, it still is rewarding to, to be able to, talk to Nolan Ryan and say, you know, what were you thinking on this? Or, uh, you know, just to not just think a question like, I wonder what a Nolan Ryan thinks of when he's on the mound, but they actually get to meet these guys. So that's, that's fun. That's rewarding. Um, so yeah, I, I just, uh, you know, started out with a magazine article for baseball digest. And I remember thinking that, you know, I'm not really a writer, I'm a teacher, but I'm going to send this out to baseball digest, hoping that they would print it because I've read them for so long, and this idea I had was similar. And by the way, the idea was spawned because of uh, guys like Bob Friend. The, the article was called uh, Some Big Name Pitchers Who Were Career Losers. So Bob Friend's a famous name. Uh, he's done a lot. He won, I think, 200 games or close to it. But lifetime, he had a losing record because he was on those lousy pirate teams in the 50s. So anyway, let me make the long story short. Baseball Digest, for some reason, decided to run the article. And then once you got your foot in the door... I was uh, lucky enough then to sell a lot more stories to them and eventually books. So, yeah, it's been very rewarding and fun. Wits, Flakes, and Clowns, the Colorful Characters of Baseball. That book also came out this year back in March. Talk about that a little bit more and kind of what you discovered about certain players uh, through that writing. Yeah, that is perhaps my favorite book that I've ever written. And, I, you know, I don't want to sound immodest, but I think it's, Maybe, like, if not the funniest baseball book I know of, it's got to be up there because I say that because I have read books all my life on baseball. And if I came across something funny, a, a quip, you know, a funny line or an anecdote or a prank, I kept a file on it. So when I write this book, I gather up all that stuff, which other people have written, and I won't take credit for that, but it's hilarious. And then I was able to interview tons of players, uh, you know, Bird Blylevin, uh, uh, but some of these guys right now are the Pirates and just tons of guys over the years saying, tell me something funny. Tell me about a colorful character. So the book goes uh, into guys from way, way back, like when Casey Stingle was a player, you know, early 1900s, 
to modern players. And a couple of cards were very helpful, like Andy Van Kuyk. He shared a couple of funny stories. Uh, I have uh, stuff on Dick Stewart, the first baseman, who is very, very colorful guy. Uh, he's the guy that they, they call Dr. Strange Glove because he was such a horrible first baseman. Uh, all he wanted to do was slug the ball, which he did. But he did things like one time there was a hot dog wrapper that blew across the infield. It's a famous story. And he snags it. And the fans in the audience know that he's a lousy glove, so they give him a standing ovation sarcastically that he was able to, you know, make a play. Uh, and uh, there's even a section in the book, uh, Wicks, Flakes, and uh, Clowns on Bob Prince, who was an extremely colorful guy. So that also was a very uh, enjoyable book to, to write and, uh, you know, get all these uh, clippings and all this stuff in my system on the paper. Because I had a hard time finding a publisher, but finally got it out there this year, and, um, and I think it's very funny. Definitely, yeah, and I think that's that's the part of the game of baseball that separates it from from football and basketball and other sports is, you know, some of the weird traditions and some of the stories, some of the clowns, like you mentioned in your book there. Um, you know, what what was that kind of? I guess how did the, how rewarding was this book for you to get a write about off the field stuff and and you know so many funny situations and stories like that. Yeah, you know, I've, I've always tried to inject humor into any of my books where, where it fit. Now, if it's a serious book, you can't do that. But as I say, this is a project that I had in the back burner for years and years and years. So it was uh, very rewarding to see it get into print. And like you said, baseball has so much downtime. Burt Blylevin said that he thinks the funniest guys in baseball as a rule are pitchers and relief pitchers often because they're on the bullpen, you know, got hours and hours to kill and nobody's really policing them much out there. So a lot of the funny stories came from or about uh, pitchers. Uh, a lot of clever guys like Andy Van Slyke. He wasn't a clown by any means. But we, the book covers not just witty players like Van Slyke, but also guys who were clowns and did pranks. And um, uh, some of the guys who were downright flaky, like a guy named Jimmy Pearsall. He hits his 100th home run, and to celebrate, he runs the bases backwards, backpedaling first, second, third, and then to home. Uh, he said he wanted to run third to second to first to home, but he knew he'd be called out if he did that. So <laughs> these guys, they have the time. Sometimes they have the creativity. There's a guy named Mo Drabowski. He used to do so many practical jokes from not just the typical hot foot, but he would, he would get uh, a, a snake that was not venomous, and he'd wrap it around the guy's uh, coat hanger and then put the guy's jersey on over it. And when the guy would go to his locker, I think it was Paul Blair and Frank Robinson on occasion, they would go to take their jersey off, and there's a snake staring at him. So some of these guys were downright crazy and uh, flaky and funny. You see so much of that in baseball. It, it's so fun to watch. It's just a different athlete than than the football athlete or the basketball athlete. In those sports, you know, you see guys have fun, and, and you see some stuff happen. But like you said, there's just so much downtime. There's so much room for these guys to have fun with it, um, you know create traditions within the team and, and the organization um, and, and just run with it. Wits, Flakes, and Clowns, the colorful characters of baseball. Please go check it out, Amazon.com. Guys, check that out along with all of Wayne's collection. Incredible author with with a lot of great stuff out right now. What's coming in the future here, Wayne? Do you have any books planned for uh, the rest of 2020 and 2021? Yeah, I have a couple proposals out there with companies. We might do a sequel to the uh, with flakes and clowns, which would be guys who aren't players, but colorful managers, owners. There have been some really wild, colorful umpires over the years, uh, members of the media. So that, that's a possibility. And uh, another one is just a, 
good old-fashioned quiz book where uh, the reader is presented with, uh, you know, clues or like, who am I? And you, and you just give them enough clues that uh, hopefully the reader is able to identify the right answer for the trivia and that sort of thing. So that's a possibility. Yeah. Very interesting. I, I like the idea of that. A sequel to Wits uh, and Flakes also. That, that would be great. Um, guys, like, like I said, please go check that out on Amazon.com. The rest of Wayne's work as well. Before we get out of here, let's talk about 1960 when the Pittsburgh Pirates had them all the way a little bit more. Some, some oddities um, highlighted throughout this book. Obviously, an MVP um, you know, that was on the losing team. Just different weird things in this World Series. Talk about that a little bit more and, and what made this World Series so different. Oh, sure. Well, first of all, to this day, Bobby Richardson is the only player from the losing team to be the MVP of the World Series. And all my life, I, you know, like you, I'm thinking, how, how does this occur? Mass hits that dramatic home run. Well, the answer that Richardson gave me is he was convinced that Sport Magazine, which used to present the award, con- uh, concluded their voting like in the eighth inning. I don't know why they didn't wait. I guess they wanted the, you know, post-game interviews to be able to say, here's the MVP. But they actually voted too soon, or naturally they would have given it to Mazeroski. Had a great series and, you know, that dramatic homer. Uh, but I talked to Elroy Face, and he said, in a way, he thought he deserved it, because here's another trivia note. He's the first guy in the history of the World Series to have three saves, and he also was the winning pitcher in the last game until the Yankees tied up, so that took his victory away. But, uh, yeah, Bobby Richardson was a weak batter normally. He had 26 ribbies in 150 games that year, and then in seven games he drives in 12 including six in one game so like one third of his ribbies his rbis for the whole season came in a in one series but wow. maz yeah he was robbed of the uh, of the mvp certainly definitely um, you know and some other some other oddities in this series as well going into that ninth inning there were some other guys from the pirates that that could have been even the mvp as well um, you know, we talk about the innings leading up to that. What was kind of, um, you know, who were the heroes for the Pirates that kept them into the game to that point and set Mazurowski up for the walk-off homer? The eighth inning for the Pirates was a tremendous inning. I forget they scored five or six to take the lead. But in that eighth inning, the Pirates should have not scored anything. They should have lost. But here's what happened. Bill Verne hit a ground ball that should have been a tailor-made double play, and that would have meant nobody would have been on base and two men would have been out. So they probably aren't going to score that inning. But instead, for some weird reason, it takes a crazy hop off the hard infield, or some say off a pebble. It hits Tony Kubek, the shortstop in the throat. And now again, instead of a rally being uh, snuffed out, Pirates go on to score five runs, it was. Five runs. And uh, one of the other plays that happened that's memorable is the pitcher for the Yankees, Jim Coates, hesitates in covering first base on a grounder to the right side that Clemente hit. Now, because he hesitates, nobody covers the base. Could have been an out. But instead, the Pirates have life and, again, go on to score a lot of runs and took the uh, lead eventually. Mantle, years later, criticized Stengel. He said right then, when Coates doesn't do that, he should have taken him out of the game because he looked nervous. He was fidgeting. You just don't let that guy pitch was his quote. And, yeah, if Coates had covered first base, the inning's over. Again, the Pirates very likely uh, – I think, lose, but instead the Pirates took the lead when Hal Smith, who should have been leading off the ninth, as I said, hit a three-run homer, and boy, that was big, 
Uh, the other weird thing was Smith never should have been in the ball game in a way. Uh, Smokey Burgess, the other catcher, started the game. Now he gets a hit, a single, and it really turns out to be a meaningless single, except because he was so slow, Murtaugh pinch ran for him, and that is what caused Smith to be in the game in the first place. If he's on the bench, he obviously doesn't hit that home run. Maz doesn't hit the home run. It's the whole situation of destiny and uh, how history would have changed. Yeah, that's great. I, you know, when you say team of destiny, I think that certifies it there. Just stuff yeah. like that. Um, you know, five in, five run eighth inning, luckiest pebble in the history of yeah. baseball there, uh, setting the Pirates up. The walk-off home run by Bill Mazarowski, a tale that never gets old. 1960, the Pirates had them. The Pittsburgh Pirates had them all the way. Guys, please go check it out. Wayne, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It has been awesome having you on. Whenever you'd like to rejoin us, please, you're, you're always welcome. I'm very enjoyable talking to you guys, knowledgeable people. I love talking sports with guys like you. Appreciate it. And thank you again. We really appreciate it coming on. We're going to have more interviews throughout this offseason. It's been fun so far. We have all kinds of articles out right now. Um, detailing how things are going to continue to roll throughout this offseason as we lead up to winter meetings. Go check that out. As always, you can find us on Omni.com, fansided.com slash rumbunter, on our social media at rumbunter, and on Apple Music as well. Until next time, have a great week, everybody. Let's go, Bucks. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.